back let's talk about some uh, good news if we can and some science topics if we can in the wake of record-breaking blizzards over the u.s and europe over the past couple winters a lot of people are scoffing at this idea of global warming notes the new york times that uh while it's been freezing at moderate latitudes temperatures in northeastern canada and greenland have been as much as 20 degrees above normal this is related to the most striking change in the terrain of the planet in recent decades, the Arctic Ocean's loss of 30% of its surface ice since 1979. Ordinarily, that ice helps preserve the extreme cold that makes air at the pole much denser than it is at less chilly lower latitudes, creating a pressure barrier between the two regions that works like a fence. Notes the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, warmer Arctic temperatures weaken that boundary, which allows a stream of bone-chilling air that normally circles the Arctic zone in a kind of polar vortex to escape southward. Scientists are noting that this, uh, this barrier has been intermittently breached before, and the two exceptional winters aren't enough to prove anything, but if the atmospheric fence against frigid Arctic air has been seriously compromised, brutally cold, snowy winters may be the new norm in much of the U.S. and Europe. Isn't that something to look forward to? To talk about this very topic, we expect in the weeks to come to bring on Mark Hertzgard. He's written a new book titled Hot, Living the Next 50 Years on Earth. I had a chance to hear Mark Hertzgard earlier this week on Michael Krasny's forum program, and he was excellent. I want to take my hat off to Michael Krasny. He's been, been a guest on this program previously. He, he sometimes will bring on one guest, as he did, uh, I guess it was on Monday of this week, and talk to that guest for one hour and fully ring a topic out uh, in terms of what it has to, uh, to offer while uh, all the while managing to hold the interest of the listener. It's a tough thing to do. Krasny does it very well. We were offered Mark Hertzgard as a guest the next day after hearing him. We've jumped on it, so we look forward to that in the next couple of weeks. We've talked in the past a bit about uh, some of the disasters that have taken place because of uh, genetically modified corn and, uh, and about NAFTA and what it has done to uh, Mexicans, Mexico's small corn farmers. Article by Tim Johnson, McClatchy.com, on uh, the Sunday Sacramento Bee. Notes that if you go down to Oaxaca and look at the rain-fed corn farms down there, you'll see very few young men, just elderly people and single mothers. People down there explain the men have gone to the United States. Now, the original idea of NAFTA was that it would be a great, uh, great employer of Mexicans because some factories would move down to the border towns and people would find work there. But it uh, turns out that part of the pact included the export of subsidized U.S. corn, which had a devastating effect on Mexican corn growers, as this article talks about. Of course, here in the United States, people like to talk about how the market will solve so many problems. Well, it, it, it probably can if we would let it in many instances, but uh, subsidizing corn to keep the price cheap has had some terrible uh, fallout. 
which we've talked about before in the wake of a high fructose corn syrup becoming the cheap sweetener that's used in everything. And per Tim Johnson in this article, uh, uh, the imports of corn in Mexico from the U.S. have gone from 7% of Mexican consumption to around 34%. In fact, according to the article, uh, NAFTA is being blamed for the loss of 2 million Mexican farm jobs. By the way, I want to heartily endorse uh, the documentary film based on Michael Pollan's The Botany of Desire. It's one of those rare, rare documentaries that uh, is as good as the book. And in one of the extras in the program, uh, Michael Pollan appeared in a panel with Ignacio Chapella from UC Berkeley, someone we need to bring on this program to talk about uh, uh, Mexican corn and, and its relationship to GMOs. Ignacio Chapella pointed out some years ago that it appeared that there was some escaping of, of these uh, of genes back into the wild uh, corn population in Mexico, which was a, a very uh, unwelcome thing to happen. Central America is where corn originated, and that's where we're going to go when we need fresh genes uh, to, to uh, bolster the world's corn crop as time goes on. Uh, you don't want to have a backflow of contamination back into that area, and that's what... Uh, Chapella, Dr. Chapella saw, wrote about it, and um, ran into some political opposition, shall we say, at UC Berkeley. Recent studies, however, have vindicated his findings. He was right all along. We'll follow up on that, hopefully in, in the coming year. Some good news to report. We talked in this program about uh, mad cow disease some years back. We devoted an entire hour to that subject, and um, can happily report at this point in time that it appears that uh, uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy and uh, its human equivalent, variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which are some very, very terrible neurologic diseases resulting from uh, uh, basically the mad cow rogue protein. Well, they've taken public health efforts and it appears they're working. New Scientist magazine notes... That bovine spongiform encephalopathy, a.k.a. mad cow disease, is almost extinct just 25 years after it was discovered. Discovered in the 80s, the number of cases rose into ni- up until 1992. And after that, there's been uh, a steady decline in the number of cases, which may drop to single figures this year. Unfortunately, because of the, uh, the delay in, in the disease process, uh, we may not be out of the woods yet in human cases resulting from people who ate infected uh, beef. But uh, thankfully, the process that uh, they believe started this whole uh, uh, epidemic, that of feeding animal remains to cattle, has been stopped. And we certainly hope that we will see the end of this disease uh, in the coming decade. Fascinating article in the current Scientific American we should talk about by Brianna Rego. In Radio Parallax, we talked a few years back about how uh, polonium-210, the radioactive element that was used to murder a former KGB operative uh, in 2006, oddly enough, turns up in tobacco. Although we did talk about this, the Scientific American article has some interesting and provocative new data. Turns out the tobacco industry was aware of the fact that polonium-210 was uh, in its uh, tobacco leaves, back in the 1960s. Turns out back at that time, with radioactive uh, fallout being a major health concern in the wake of nuclear uh, uh, testing across the world, a radiochemist, Vilma Hunt, and colleagues at the Harvard School of Public Health, 
developed a technique to measure very low levels of radium and polonium, the two elements that were discovered by uh, the Curies back in 1898. One day, Vilma Hunt uh, noticed some cigarette ash that one of her colleagues had left behind, and on a whim, she tested the ash with her new technique. She was astonished to find no signs of polonium whatsoever, whereas trace concentrations of radioactive isotopes were common in almost everything else that had been tested. Turns out that in smoldering tobacco, the polonium turns into vapor. She realized that the uh, missing polonium must have gone up in smoke, and that meant that the smokers would be inhaling it directly into their lungs. Research then looked at the, uh, the lung tissue of, uh, of smokers who had recently died and determined that, yes, polonium did in fact collect in specific areas in the lung. Were the airway branches and bifurcations, they found hot spots of radioactivity. Turned out the chemistry of certain fertilizers just, uh, you know, allowed more polonium to be taken up by the growing plants. This gets more interesting. Looking back at it, internal memos that have been since discovered show that tobacco manufacturers were very concerned at this time they might suffer a public affairs disaster if what they knew about polonium came to light. Aware of this risk, the industry soon began to devote extensive manpower and money to developing internal research programs on polonium. These operated behind closed doors. Years later, in 1977, scientists at Philip Morris had completed a draft of a paper entitled Naturally Occurring Radon-222 Daughters in Tobacco and Smoke Condensate. They were going to submit it to Science Magazine, but the director of product development at Philip Morris said he was wary of publishing the manuscript. That scientist noted that it had the potential of waking a sleeping giant. So on the advice of the legal department, the manuscript was denied approval for publication. But it gets worse. They did research on the polonium and discovered there were certain ways they could minimize its concentration in the tobacco leaf. But as it was put in a memo from R.J. Reynolds, removal of these materials would have no commercial advantage. Now this article does not imply that polonium-210 is one of the major causes of cancer in the lungs of, uh, of smokers, but... Um, I've seen other research suggesting that that might indeed be the case. But the punchline of this story is that the tobacco industry has known for decades how to remove a dangerous isotope from cigarettes, but has done nothing about it. The article notes the government now has the power to force a change and suggests that it uh, may be time. All right, here's a health item from the Duh file. More than half of American pet owners sleep with their furry companions. A new University of California study warns that such close contact can transmit serious illnesses from pet to caretaker, including meningitis, worms, and through fleas, even the bubonic plague. Experts suspect that up to several million cases of zoonotic diseases, those passed from animals to humans, may occur every year, ranging from skin conditions like ringworm to life-threatening ailments such as staph infections. Researchers note that while pets provide a lot of comfort and can reduce stress, they're animals, and they can carry potentially dangerous bacteria, parasites, and bugs. Hello? Article in the Week magazine notes that researcher Bruno Chommel told HealthDay.com that it's not wise to let pets lick you on the mouth and recommends hand-washing whenever you've been handling them. Said Bruno Chommel, having a pet in the bed is not a good idea. I'm, personally, I'm surprised that this has to be explained to people. Or at any rate, at least 
people more sophisticated than, say, Neanderthals. But if you do uh, enjoy having your pets lick you on the mouth, please make your dates aware of this fact before they take you out. And take it from me, if your girlfriend insists upon having the dog under the covers with you in bed, get a new girlfriend. All right, in the minutes we have left, we should do a couple of obituaries. We're sad to note that Jack LaLanne passed away last month at his home in Morro Bay. Jack LaLanne was someone we thought about trying to bring on to this program. Alas, it will never be, but uh, he, in his own way, has influenced this show, I suppose you'd say. He had a pretty uh, simple formula for health, which is, you know, eat well and exercise a lot. According to his obituary, he, uh, he heard a nutrition pioneer, Paul Bragg, lecture on the benefits of diet and exercise when he was 15, which led Lalane on a crusade that would span decades. Shortly afterward, he opened the nation's first modern health studio on the third floor of an aging Oakland office building in 1936. Reportedly, Lalane began to take heat from all directions, including the medical community. He said in 2005, people thought I was a charlatan and a nut. <laughs> but, of course, he eventually prevailed. By 1951, his message of diet and exercise had proved popular to the point that he was given a television show in the East Bay to preach his gospel of health. And as a small boy, I well remember Jack Lalane's TV program. I can tell you for sure, it was the first time I ever heard the term yogurt. And I can tell you this, as a boy, I always heard that Jack LaLanne, with handcuffs on, had swum into San Francisco from Alcatraz. I remember thinking, that was amazing, and I wonder if I could do that someday. Well, one day I did, minus the handcuffs. I think it still counts. In 1974, he again swam from Alcatraz to Fisherman's Wharf, this time he was shackled and handcuffed and towed a thousand-pound boat. And, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how you do that either. Although, come to think of it, I used to play <laughs> human tugboat with my boat and it had to have weighed more than a thousand pounds, so I don't know. You hear these stories about Jack LaLanne and you just have to laugh because, you know, <laughs> he certainly was an expert at self-promotion. It was said that no one sold Jack LaLanne better than Jack LaLanne. He certainly was a pioneer of uh, a video jumping jacks, deep knee bends, and push-ups. And I'm sure that over the years, Jack LaLanne did a hell of a lot of people a hell of a lot of good. We salute him for that. And we note the passing of singer Gladys Horton, who back at the age of 15 rounded up a handful of high school friends to form a singing group in Detroit called the Cassinettes, a playful contraction of can't sing yet. The girls entered a talent contest and lost. But one of their high school teachers thought they were good enough to recommend to a friend who had recently launched a record company in Detroit, which was called Motown. Under a new name, The Marvelettes, in the summer of 1961, the group released their debut single, Please, Mr. Postman, with Gladys Horton singing lead. The song also featured a young Marvin Gaye on drums. The song went to number one, and The Marvelettes were on the road. Noted Rollingstone.com, traveling was so harsh for black teenagers at that time that one of the Marvelettes had a nervous breakdown. But it was noted that despite the difficulties, the group's success helped transform Motown into a major record label and paved the way for the Ronettes, the Supremes, and all the girl groups that followed. 
Please, Mr. Postman was later recorded by the Beatles and again by the Carpenters in 1974. It became one of only eight songs to top the Hot 100 by two different artists. The Marvelettes had six top 20 singles in all, and in 1962 had two top 20 hits with Playboy and Beachwood 45789. Note of the LA Times, the Marvelettes predated in the era when Motown honcho Barry Gordy packaged hits and put his acts through a kind of charm school to groom them into marketable stars. As unpolished as they were, they were the first queens at the label, a position that led to some conflicts with rivals. They noted in one incident the Supreme's Diana Ross punctuated a bout of bickering with Horton by driving a car in her direction and screeching to a stop with little room to spare. Gladys Horton stopped performing in 1967 to to care for her son. Although Gladys Horton's passed away, she's left us with some pretty good tunes. That does it for today's program. Our thanks to Tristan Gooley. We recommend very highly his book, The Natural Navigator, A Watchful Explorer's Guide to a Nearly Forgotten Skill. And we hope that, uh, dear listener, you'll go to his website and learn a few things. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. On next week's program, we plan to bring you Dr. Charles Bamforth of UC Davis to talk about his book, Beer is proof God loves us. We expect that to be a whole lot of fun. We'll see you then. Oh, just the time, just the-